so true it all. Okay, I want you to take your scriptures and turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and then we'll jump over to 3. I want to continue on what I was speaking about Sunday in regards to the curse and the universal moral law of God because we need some discussion about that, some teaching. So I'm going to quarry that out for us tonight uh, for a foundational. As Sunday, I'm going to continue what we started. Um, so in Romans, beginning in verse chapter 2, verse 13, <clears throat> Begin, begin with verse 11, actually. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hear of the law who are justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law... These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Right here is the universal moral law of God written on the hearts of Every single human being that has lived ever, that is living or will ever live, there is an overarching principle. And uh, this is the very principle by which Adam and Eve were cursed by because there was no written law at that time known as the law of Moses. This is what caused the curse to pass down to all of us that God has placed within the hearts of people, those who hear the moral law and those who never hear the law, his universal moral law. So look over here at chapter 3 of Romans, <clears throat> beginning in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, how could a Gentile fall short of the glory of God if he's never heard the law of God? It's Romans 2, the universal moral law of God. God is absolutely holy, perfectly holy. And as someone that is perfectly holy, he cannot stand the presence of anything that is not holy. And there is nothing that's holy. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. This word is the subject of our discussion tonight. A propitiation, notice a propitiation. A means an indefinite article instead of a definite article, the. 
a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of his, in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So I want to give you four verses to write down very quickly. And then I have 11 things on my sheet here that I've written down. I'm going to, I wrote it down very neatly. I'm going to Xerox it when we are done. If you'll just stick around long enough, I'll give it to you. But I don't want to give it to you now because you'll be looking up all the stuff and it's why we don't put stuff on the board uh, or a screen. So here's the first things, though, I would like it for you to think about. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 are the first time this term propitiation is mentioned in the New Testament. In Romans 3, 21 through 26, you have the rationale of God's justification of sinners. It is His rationale. Why does God justify sinners? Because sinners cannot save themselves. It is impossible. That's His rationale. Okay, that's revealed in Romans 3, 21 through 26 regarding propitiation. The second time, and I'm going to tell you what that is in a moment. Propitiation is mentioned a second time in Hebrews 2, 17, which is the rationale for the incarnation of God the Son. The rationale for the incarnation of God the Son. The second time propitiation is mentioned is Hebrews 2.17. Number three is 1 John 2, 1 through 2. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. This is the heavenly ministry of our Lord. The heavenly ministry of our Lord in regards to propitiation. And number four, in 1 John 4, 8 through 10, you have the definition of the love of God. The definition of the love of God is mentioned in the context of the fourth time this word propitiation is mentioned. Now, with that being said, I want to introduce to you a term that you need to become very familiar with. If I told you a person does not believe in the Trinity, they are a follower or they're a church member or whatever you want to say, and they don't believe they are a they don't believe in the Trinity of God. They might be a modalist or something else like that, or they just don't understand it. But they say, I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't believe that God is in three persons, blessed Trinity. I don't believe they're the same substance. I don't believe that stuff. We would call that person anti-Trinitarian. They're anti-Trinitarian. Uh, a uh, theological society I belong to is called the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, you have to be a Ph.D. to be a member of it, and you have to agree in the authority of Scripture, and you have to be Trinitarian. That's all that's required. The authority of Scripture, and you have to espouse the, Trini the Trinity, because you cannot, you cannot move past into the work of Christ and be against the Trinity. So, so anti-Trinitarian is something that we're all, we've all heard that term. There's a little bit more nuanced term that may not be more familiar to you, and it is uh, anti-incarnational. 
Anti-incarnational is the idea simply that God did not come and become the Son of God, become an incarnate, become incarnate. That Jesus was actually a perfectly wonderful person, but he was not God. So there's no incarnation. God did not become a human or take on a human body as Jesus Christ did. Well, obviously, if you believe that, you're probably going to be able to go backwards and say they probably don't believe the Trinity either. They're, they've got some real foundational issues. There are people that claim to be Christians and teach in seminaries and colleges and, and pulpits that are anti-incarnational. Okay? And then this is the term I want you to know. This is the one that's actually more applicable to us. And it is a term that may be new to you. And this term is anti-redemptionist or anti-redemptionism. Anti-redemptionism, R-E-D-E-M-P-T-I-O-N-I-S-M. Here's what this means. Um, it is sidelining. It is sidelining or actually denying, actually denying the work of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. Anti-redemptionism sidelines or actually denies the work of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer in this way. Here it is. Ready? This is the key. Who did all, who did all to save us from the curse? Who did all to save us from the curse? Now let me tell you why that applies to us. Many of us come from a faith tradition. We may not understand why we say it, but we do say it, that says we have some part in our redemption. That is anti-redemptionism. We have no part in our redemption. The only thing we brought to our redemption was our sin which necessitated our redemption. Our decision to follow Jesus, our prayers to follow Jesus, I'm going to show you in just a moment, is not a basis for you to claim salvation. There is a much better way. You've heard it all your life and you may be too old to change, but make no doubt about it. If you believe that you contributed one iota to your salvation, you are an anti-redemptionist, period. You say, well, I don't believe that. Doesn't matter. I'm contending for the faith as revealed by the Scripture. Jesus paid it all. You don't pray to receive Jesus. Your prayer to receive Jesus did no more save you than me feeding my dog this morning or whatnot. If you're saved... The evidence of it will not be what you did. The evidence will be what He is doing in you. Now you say, well, what is your evidence for this? Why would you say that? Look at the condition of the visible church today and whatever evangelicalism means today. Look at how Christians can hardly be separated from lost people. 
and yet they walk around high-handed as if somehow they had it within themselves to save themselves. If you can pray to get saved, then therefore it's Jesus plus. This is not historical Christianity. This is not the Christianity that was preached by the Apostle Paul and Peter. This is not the Christianity preached by Jesus Christ. This is an, this is an aberration that started in the 1800s with a man named Charles Finney and a bunch of other folks and the Wailing Bench and all of these things and it has totally indoctrinated and inoculated loving people that believe they're Christians from the authentic gospel this is, that, that is truly found in Scripture. And they are seeking the glory of God for themselves when in fact they're nothing more than anti-redemptionists and they must be warned because Jesus Christ said in Matthew 7, many of many, many, many of you will say in that day, I did this, I did that, I prayed to receive Jesus, I did these things, I did that. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, just bear with me. Let me finish. And then for you tonight, I'm going to let you ask me questions. In fact, you can insult me. You can tell me I'm an idiot. You can give full voice to what you think because I am kicking the tradition to the street for contending to the faith that's been handed down for centuries and for millennia. The authentic gospel of Christ that it is Jesus Christ who alone secured our redemption. You can no more say I, am, I have been saved by grace because I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Well, then you weren't saved by grace. You were saved because you accepted Jesus as your Savior. So therefore, who is the author of your salvation? And Christianity is caught. It's not taught. How is it caught? Us being lights in the world of darkness around us. Walking out there and... I'm not, it's not my job to go out there and fix everything they do over there. It's my job to walk in such a way that when they can't fix it out, they come and they say, Pastor James, we've, we've got ourselves in a bind. What can we do? And, and then I sit here and I say, well, what does God's mind say about it? What is plea? See, I think the Lord is very upset with those who think they can save themselves. And, of course, we've read in the Scripture, they are without excuse. They will be sent to hell. That's Romans chapter 1. There is no excuse. And the moral law of God is written on their heart. So they're lost. If they believe, if you, if you are, I mean, this is not an issue of secondary uh, things in the church. This is essential. And the fact that people are arguing today over how they can be saved and the fact that people today are talking about the lack of their experience or they're talking about the experience of other people shows that the church doesn't know who God is and who we are. So watch this. Number two, this is the second thing. I've shown you what anti-redemption is. Now just listen to the rest of the argument because I'm going to give you the last word. I'll turn the mic off and give you the last word. The atonement cannot be focused properly where the biblical view of God's justice as one facet of His holiness and of human willfulness as the root of our racial, communal, and personal sinful in guilt is not grasped. 
Let me say that again. This is the great Jim Packer, J.I. Packer. He says, The atonement cannot be focused properly where the biblical view of God's justice as one facet of His holiness and of the human willfulness as the root of our racial, communal, and personal sinfulness and guilt is not grasped. You cannot look at the justice of God and not look at the full racial, communal sinfulness of each one of us. Because God is absolutely, perfectly, undeniably holy and exponentially to the infinite power. And we are the complete opposite of that. As the scripture says, to fail in one is to fail at it all. Right? You with me? All right, number three, the human mind has a built-in function that we all, that we call conscience, that we call the conscience, that tells us when we behave, when we misbehave, we ought to suffer for it. The human mind has a built-in function that we call conscience that tells us when we misbehave, we ought to suffer for it. Look over here again at Romans chapter 2. Let me prove it up for you. Romans 2 and verse 1, verse uh, 14 and 15 particular. Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do, extinct, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. So the Gentiles, before they ever had the law of God, the Romans, the, you know, the Code of Hammurabi and all this stuff, they wrote laws that said, don't kill somebody. And if you kill somebody, you're going to die. It's the rule of lex talionis, that eye for an eye. That, they had that before they ever had, had the Word of God, but I want you to know something about that. The Word of God, though, was already being written before they ever happened. And that's one reason, that's another reason we believe in a young earth. I mean, all the stuff the philosophers did and they wrote, the funny thing is about it, though they didn't have it in 500 B.C., it was already written in the Old Testament. It was already there. But it was also written on their heart, verse 15, in that they show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively or alternately accusing or else defending them. So people have with them every person, whether it's Osama bin Rotten or it's uh, somebody else or it's, it's Billy Graham, whoever it is, they have within their hearts a moral code. Where did it come from? It came from God. All mankind is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. So every man is fallen. Everyone, every child, woman, and anything in between is fallen because of a fallen nature that was passed down from Adam, the Adamic curse. And that's what this is about is the curse. And so right here what I want to show you is this. This is, and I want to go back to anti-redemptionism now from a logical standpoint. As much as maybe you don't agree, but just listen to me. Here is the universal moral law of God written right here. So if a person is truly under the universal moral law of God, then how can their prayer even be acceptable in the sight of a holy God having done so much sin by nature? How can God accept this prayer? Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I don't even know how to say it anymore. I haven't said it in so long. Heavenly Father... 
I'm trusting Jesus Christ for my eternal life. I know that He died on the cross and rose from the grave. He paid the penalty for my sin and purchased a place in heaven for me. I'm now trusting you for my eternal life, and I will turn from my sins and dirty ways as best I can as you show me in Jesus' name. Amen. Did I just get saved again? How, how, can, a, how can someone that's wicked offer a prayer to a holy God? What can make that prayer holy to Him? Nothing can. Absolutely nothing can make that prayer unless something happens first. Dr. Fish and I in seminary, well, he was the professor and I was the student. But I will tell you, one of the angriest times, he was sitting at the end of the table and I was sitting right here with all these other guys, not, well, hardly one of them is even in the ministry anymore, and sitting there and he got so mad at me because he said the prayer comes first then the salvation and I said dead men can't pray and oh man did he let me have it and since he's the professor that means I just submit and you, I'm, I mean you can't do any worse than he did I guarantee you and he embarrassed me but he was still wrong and I'm sorry he was he was wrong. He was preaching. I mean, he was a Southern Baptist evangelist. You have to stick with the stuff. When you work for the company, you got to say what the company says. A friend of mine here in town just got fired from her job because she wouldn't be vaccinated. Um, the company policy of that place said anybody that works here has to be vaccinated. She says it's against my constitutional rights to do it in my conscience. They said you're fired just like that and she's gone. This is Texas. It's a right to work state. We can fire you because we don't like the color of your eyes. And that happened to her. That's what happened. When you're Southern Baptist evangelism, you better preach the company standard, and that is invitations, baptisms, and prayers to receive Jesus. That's where it's all about. Because once you do that, we'll marry you, bury you, we'll take your money, we'll tell you there's enough grace, and uh, we'll tolerate your sin so long as you stay and don't fight. That's it. And that was the company policy. That's what make, but that's not what changes societies. But boy, it grows these great synagogues of Satan. But it doesn't change societies. It doesn't change people. Because people have this trust in themselves. They think they did it. They think, well, listen, Pastor, you have no right to say that because on September 13, 1984, I prayed to receive Jesus Christ at 1212 Northwest 12th Place in Andrews, Texas. And I know that's when it happened to me. Don't leave mad, Rick. Okay. And uh, um, I, I, I mean, and, and so I go stand before the great white throne judgment, and God says to me, He says, Why should I let you in my heaven? Because on September 13, 1984, I heard the gospel, the Roman Rome, Dr. H.A. Hanks, after the Chamber of Commerce meeting, and I prayed to receive Jesus in my heart. And I started singing, Since Jesus came into my heart, and I've just been changed the rest of my life. And the Lord's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. If that's the basis of it. One man was dying not too long ago and he said, I just hope. Well, no, let me give you even a better illustration. My aunt was dying. All the money in the world. But I'm going to tell you something. You have a golden casket. It's not going to mean a lot if you lose your soul. You have a golden casket. It's not going to mean a lot if you lose your soul. My Aunt Sue, with all the money that she had as an only child, millions upon millions of dollars that she had, her last words were, I hope I was good enough. Let me tell you something. If you're there when I'm dying, I won't be saying that. 
I will not be saying, I'm going to be trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to be saying that either. What I'm going to be saying is, it is in His cross condemned. He stood for me. And it's on the basis of the work of Jesus that I have the assurance of faith. It is the basis of the work. And see, let me tell you something about assurance of faith. A person who does not grow to the assurance of faith cannot grow in holiness. That's not in the notes, so you better write it down. If you cannot grow to assurance of faith, you will not grow in holiness. The reason is you have no assurance that you got it, that you're going to be okay. And how do you get assurance? Assurance is a feeling. So what do you have to do? Then you have to come to a place of security. What's security? What the Scripture says. Tell me where I'm not teaching you Scripture. If any of you in here can show me where there is an invitation given, you pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and the Savior says, I will repent, call myself a liar, go into sackcloth and ashes. It does not exist in the Scripture. There's another way. Jesus calls. He says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it says immediately they left their nets. So watch this. So human, the human mind has this built-in function that we call conscious, the conscience that tells us that when we misbehave, we ought to suffer for it. We see this in our own lives. We see people misbehave. We think they should suffer. We see ourselves misbehave. We think we should suffer. This is the universal moral law of God under which all man is condemned. Okay? Number five, therefore this is the curse that I talked about Sunday. This is the curse. You see, to, this is the curse. Get this point. To offend at one point was to be guilty of it all. You know where that's written? That's written to the Christians and the Jews in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9. It says right there, to offend at one point is to be guilty of it all. Friend, if you think that you can save yourself, you're guilty of all the law. If you think you can be saved any other way than the way the Scripture says you can, you're guilty of all the law. Not to mention if you get upset in your heart or if you say something you shouldn't or much less as it says in James, he who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sin and it may not even be sinful what you're doing or not doing. But if you think what you're doing is wrong, guess what? It's sin for you. You busted the moral law of God. The, the universal moral law of God, but you've also broken the law of Moses. But what about the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles that have never had the moral law, who did not have the law of Moses? Well, go back here with me to Genesis chapter 2. Is everybody okay? Can you say amen? Genesis chapter 2. i only got one page left. It's always better. Y'all just remind me, James, write your notes out. Don't read them. Write them. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Look what the Bible says. The Lord commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you will surely die. What was in that tree of good and evil? What is in that tree? The universal moral law of God. Everything to know what is good and evil was there. And this is before the law of Moses. Now go over here to John, uh, Genesis 3, 16, 17, 18, and 19. Genesis 3, 
uh, beginning in verse 16, look what it says. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet you de- your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it. And all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and for you, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay? What did they break? Go over here now to Romans chapter 5. The great hinge of the whole Bible is Romans chapter 5. It all hinges right here. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Now, let's keep going. Remember what we just read. Therefore, just as through one man centered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Just, you just have to write that down. You say, well, what about babies? Well, let me just ask you this question. Why do they die? Why do babies die? Do babies die? Worst funerals I ever do is when babies die. I mean, there's nothing, I cannot think of any, I mean, maybe my own kids, yes, but bearing babies is the worst part of ministry. It is. Even, even babies that are stillborn are, is even the worst. And then when the families don't know Christ at all, it is just horrendous. What happens to those kids? Does the Bible have something to say about it does. I, I wouldn't know that it did if I didn't have to bury him. And I hope I never have to do it again. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man centered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, underline all. All men, because all sinned. For until the law, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Notice that, for until the law. Now, what law is he speaking about? This is the law of Moses. Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So there you go. There you have the concept of the universal moral law of God and then the moral law of God written in the Ten Commandments. So see, death reigned. How could there be death prior to Moses' law? Because they're breaking another kind of law. What kind of law? The law written on their hearts. The conscience, it says in Romans 2. It's this whole thing. You say, I have never heard this. Well, you have now. Hallelujah. Because this is a... Listen, I started off telling you one thing. At the end, I hope you find some great assurance in your heart. You should feel absolutely tremendous when this is done. But if you don't, that's too bad. For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him to come. So you see, those who don't even know the law of Moses sin, even though they don't know the law, just like they did from the time of Adam to Moses. Well, that's what happens to the Arabs. And that's what happens to the people in the Congo that have never heard. 
That's what happens to the people, the aborigines in Australia that have never heard and the pygmies over here and the people, the Chinese that have never heard and the deep backwater Indians that have never heard. And you see, that is the reason that the Bible never teaches that those who don't hear the gospel are saved. They can't be. You know what the proof is? They die. They're cursed. So that means if God saves everyone that has never heard the gospel, then why do they die? They would be innocent, would they not? But the law of God's written in their hearts. So what do they need? They need the gospel. How are they going to get it? We're going to have to go to them. We're going to have to go preach it to them. Right? Amen? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So we're not universalists. That's Robert Schuller, and that's uh, the guy that wrote uh, how to Norman Vincent Peale, who's the biggest influence of Robert Schuller. How to win friends and influence people. Norman Vincent Peale was the great uh, author that influenced Robert Schuller more than anybody. But I want to tell you something. If you want to go out and win friends and influence people, don't tell them that what they're doing is wrong. That's how you do it. One thing I, I take no pride in this, but I am grateful for, there wasn't a day that Jesus Christ got to lay down at night and didn't have some controversy and somebody out to get him. You know why? Because he told the truth. And today truth is in low regard. Well, I want my own Jesus. I got news for you. If he's your Jesus, he surely isn't mine. Because Jesus is the Christ. And He is the Lord. And there is no possessive article that I can place upon Him. I am His. Amen? I hope that's yours. Well, my Bible says, well, you know, I don't care. The Bible says, and that's all I care about, is it's truth. We must teach truth. That's it. Everybody in this town is putting in smoke machine light bombs, uh, screens and everything else trying to catch up to Valley Creek or not split down here at the Methodist Church or try to be relevant at First Baptist Church or try to do all this stuff. But there is one place that I know of for sure and maybe Westminster over there where they're contending for the faith. And people say, well, they're not making any difference because they're not growing. That is from the eyes of man. But it is God that launched this great endeavor of the kingdom with 11 fishermen. Even the hoity-toity guy from Dallas, I mean Jericho, Jerusalem, Judas couldn't stick with the stuff. God does not do it the way everyone's trying to do it. These guys like Stephen Furtick out there that are some of the biggest heretics today, these books that are written about Jesus calling or these things, these are things that make people feel good. They are full-blown heresy. They are not truths. They're middle truths. And let me tell you something. We all like to live in the realm of black and white. Where we live as Christians is this place. We need to know what is right and what is almost right. Wrong has already been spelled out for us. But let me tell you something about Stephen Furtick, who some people in our church love him. Stephen Furtick was trained at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary under Dr. Paige Patterson, and that's where he got his Ph.D. He is a Southern Baptist, and he is preaching more heresy than T.D. Jakes could in a month of Sundays. And he's followed because he's slick and handsome. He is the Southern Baptist, Joel Osteen. And you know why everybody likes him? Because he doesn't say anything to upset you. 
He doesn't say anything that will, that will cause you any conviction in your soul to look at and say, listen, I am, you know, people say, well, I have given my life to the Lord. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need your life. What He needs is your obedience. I've given my life to foreign missions in Peru. God doesn't need, the Peruvians don't need your life. They need your obedience. The signs of a Christian is obedient faith to the Lord. That is the fruit of the covenant of grace, which I'm getting to. Watch this. But the free gift, notice, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift, underline that, here's the good news. But the free gift is not like the transgression, which is the bad news. For if the transgression of one, if for by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Verse 17, For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And everybody said... So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will all be made righteous. Here it is. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, everything in your Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 should always go back to that passage. Every time you read your Bible, no matter what story you're reading, you need to go back to this. But if you believe, in an, if you in your heart have this nascent anti-redemptionism, there is a term that is used in modern day vernacular called they just don't get it. And the sad thing is, that's what's accepted. But let me tell you, the Greeks have a term for it that does not exist in English. It's A-M-A-T-H-I-A, amathia. Amathia means I am not willing to hear anything else on the matter. It does not mean I am not willing to believe anything else on the matter. I am not open to the discussion. I am not open to learning. 
I am not open to letting my blind spots be seen. I am not open to being seen as little. I am not being open to being corrected. And here's what the Greek said. When a person demonstrates this idea, they will not listen to anything else on a subject. They say you need to treat that person truly as handicapped because they are. And the only way we can express it in English is this way. It is disknowledge. If it is your feeling tonight that you cannot accept that it was not your prayer that saved you, I must tell you and warn you as one whom has been positionally placed in your life to exhort you, to rebuke you, and correct you, you are in grave danger for two reasons. One, your misbelief. Number two, your refusal to learn. And you are conceited. And that's just getting personal. And a conceited person cannot learn. You are truly the old dog that cannot learn new tricks. You can't do that. If any person ever believes they have arrived at the place where they have done all they can do, they've learned all they've learned. Listen, they're at Amathea. You're handicapped. I'm going to get you a handicap sticker. You're no good to anybody. You're no good to yourself. You're no good to the kingdom because you can't learn. God gave you a mind. What does He say in the Scripture? He doesn't say renew your heart. Somebody say to me, well, God knows my heart. Yeah, He does. You don't ever want to say that to somebody. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, He does. It's deceitfully wicked above all things, the Bible says. Well, He knows I'm righteous, and the Bible says righteous is filthy rags. And you see, Christianity in America particularly, and it is particularly here in this country, has become a personal thing instead of a heavenly thing. It has become a very personal thing where people have decided they can go do private interpretation. I've been studying church membership on doing church membership. And one of the things, when you go look through the historical confessions and you go look through the history of the church, one of the things that, that was significant about church membership is that when you became a member of a church, you put yourself under the supervision of the minister and you put yourself under the discipline of the minister in an open Bible to examine, to exhort, and to correct you in your spiritual life. That's why we'll never have church membership in the Journey Church because you're not going to do that. I don't believe you will. You're not going to do that. That's the line too far and that's our weakness. But the pastor is fallible. Yes, he is, but God chose to put a fallible man. God chose to confound the wise with the weaklings. God chose to use a shepherd boy that had no magnificence about him at all to become the king of Israel. And then he, chose, a, he charged the, chose the son of a carpenter who was considered to be an illegitimate child to be the savior of the world. And so the reality of it is, is that it's, it's just, you know, we have much to grow on, but we're not going on that one right now. That's not, that's certainly not my deal. So you have the curse. Now watch the character. Watch this. Number six, the character of God. The character of God is revealed explicitly in the law of God. If you want to know what God's like, His character, look at the law of God. Why? Because it spells out what He considers holy. You want to know the character of God? Read the law. 
So that you can't say, I, can't, I don't need to read my New Testament, Old Testament. Yes, you do. You need to know the character of God. And here's the second thing. The character of God is explicitly revealed in the law in that it spells out what God considers holy, but it is implicit, implicit throughout the entire Old Testament. It's implicit. So what do you want to know about the character of God? Read the Old Testament. It's explicit and implicit. Now, what about the character of man? Listen to this. It is, the character of man is explicit in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is explicit. It's spelled out. It's written. It's right there, but it's implicit. It's implicit. It is internal. You can't see it, but you feel it. You know it. It is implicit. Why? Because of the universal moral law of God. That is, our, even our own consciences condemn us because we know we're not good enough. So if you want to know the character of God and the character of man, you have got to read this word in its grammatical, historical, literal, objective manner. Not what did the Bible say to me, but what is the Bible saying in the context? What did the author mean to the recipients of what he was writing? Okay, so here's the idea. This is the difference between Sophia and Amathia. Sophia's wisdom, that is the seeking of good. Amathia is saying, I don't have anything else to learn. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to be open to anything else. I'm done. I quit. I don't like that. I don't want to learn it. It makes me angry, and I've got to tell somebody about it. That's one thing. And then you go to the, the philosophers. What were they looking for? Eudaimonia. They were looking for happiness. They wanted to find a way for people to be happy about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Everybody was miserable, so they're trying to figure out how to be happy. Folks are still doing it today. Pornography, drugs, alcohol, um, the snorting stuff, you know, doing all that kind of stuff, trying to figure out money will make them happy, buy that golden coffin, all that stuff. And then you have in the Scripture the concept of joy, makarios or kara, this joy that's everlasting, this joy that's eternal. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Whatever befalls me, I can always have joy in Jesus Christ. Now, how can I have that? Because in my place condemned he stood. I didn't stand in my place. He stood in my place. He did it. I didn't do it. And he didn't do some of it. He did all of it. He redeemed me. So today, number seven, most, if not all, do not understand who God is and who we are. God is infinitely holy, therefore nothing unholy is in His presence ever. Nothing can ever stand in His presence that is unholy. Do you understand that? Not even a sinner's prayer can make it. It cannot make it. Nothing. Why? Because the sinner's prayer comes from somebody whom the curse rests upon. Right? And what is the curse? The curse means that you try to do what's right, and in trying to do it, you still do it wrong. So something has to be done. God is infinitely holy, and nothing unholy is in His presence ever. And here's the other thing. Humans are unholy Period. But here's the good news, if it's good news at all. No one has ever been as worse as they could be. And that's called God's prevenient grace. Hitler could have been a whole lot worse. 
So could Mussolini and all those other people. Could have been a whole lot worse. That devil could be a whole lot worse. And God's prevenient grace. There, why? We know this from Scripture. God is long-suffering that none should perish. Maybe people that have believed they've saved themselves through the sinner's prayer is because they're the elect of God, yet their election hasn't turned into their inauguration. They're believing in the sinner's prayer, but they, that maybe later on after 50, 60 years, they think they've walked with Christ. They get gloriously saved because they realize it's Christ in them, the hope of glory, not their sinner's prayer. That becomes the greatest testimony of all that I used to believe this way, and hallelujah, I'm saved. It's changed me. The curse is lifted. I don't even have to try anymore. It's been lifted off of me. And consequently, that's a great testimony at that point because it is Christ who did it, not you. Right? So watch this. So the humans are unholy, period. They cannot stand in God's presence. And the harder they try, the worse they become. Turn over here to Paul. In, Paul. Turn over here to Galatians. And I'm going to tell you something. It is very interesting. I saw a lady the other day that abandoned the faith. I saw her and her husband in a restaurant and had a nice visit with her. And uh, she completely has abandoned the Christian faith. She has completely abandoned Scripture because she believes that the Apostle Paul is absolutely, without question, the Antichrist because she believes that we must still work our way into the kingdom and consequently, the preaching of grace is the preaching of the Antichrist. And you know what the problem is with her? She's cursed. She's cursed. She's living under the same curse you and I live under. She's cursed. And you know what? One day, it's my prayer, she's just going to wear out and finally give up. And then the Lord, should He choose will save her miserable soul. Just like he saved ours. Right? You need to decide if you're saved or you got saved. But it can't be both. You need to write that down. You need to decide you were either saved or you got saved. But it can't be both. Anybody that boasts, well, when I got saved, it, it makes my, my hair stand up on the back of my neck. What do you mean when you got it? What did you do? Are you boasting? You know, for me, salvation is, I am a wicked man whom God has by some celestial, brilliant spark in his brain for some reason chosen me to stand up with all of my problems and be a guy and preach the Bible. I wouldn't dare boast of my salvation because to boast of it is to boast of my sinfulness. But I will boast of my Christ because in my place condemned he stood. And I have stood where he stood when he was condemned. And some of you have stood there with me and I hope to take some of you back. So what does all this mean? You're all looking so heavy like I've just changed your whole Southern Baptist outlook on your salvation. Listen, I didn't, I'm not, don't come up to me and ask me if you're saved when we're done. I can't tell you if you are. But I can tell you this, you need a Redeemer. And that's how I want to finish this. We need a Redeemer. See, the curse of the law says that I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. Look what I just found in here. I hope it's not alive. Look at that. Here, whoa, whoa. 
That was really funny. So we, I meant to throw that at you, Gene, but it didn't go that way, the force field. So here's the thing. If this is the case, if we're an anti-redemptionist, if we're a person under the curse, if all these things of the Bible says what it says, then what do we need? We need a redeemer. And that's the point I want to make here. We need a redeemer. We need, here's what the term redeemer means. We need to be transferred from a state of bondage without hope to a state of freedom with a future. We need to be transferred from bondage, from the state of bondage without hope to a state of freedom with a future. That's what redemption does. How does this happen? By the payment of the price required. There is a payment that's required for you to be redeemed, for me to be redeemed. And it has nothing to do with prayer. It has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with three things. Number one, this, to satisfy the righteousness of God. For there to be a redeemer, for us to be redeemed, there must be a satisfaction of the righteousness of God. Number two, there must be a satisfaction of His justice. His justice must be satisfied. And number three, that, that not only must there be someone that can satisfy the righteousness of God and satisfy the justice of God, but for us to be redeemed, someone must satisfy the wrath of God. That is propitiation. So listen to this. Here's what happened at Calvary. Here's what happened at Calvary. You had, right, you, you're going to like this. Redeeming love and retributive justice joined hands at Calvary. The redeeming love of God joined hands with retributive justice in that moment. They joined hands and God sowed Himself, God showed Himself to be as we have just read in Galatians or are going to read now, Galatians 3, the just and the justifier of Him that has faith in Jesus. It is not to my faith that I cling for salvation. It is to the cross. Amen? It is to the cross. Look over here at Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many are as the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified, the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. That's from Habakkuk 2.9. Therefore the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that he would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So see, the Gentiles never even had the law, and yet the work of Christ works for the Gentiles who have never heard the law, never heard the Bible, never heard anything about it except that Jesus Christ is the Savior. He broke the curse and canceled sin for them as well through faith in Christ at the cross. Why? Because He, he, he didn't just break the curse of the moral law. He broke the curse off the universal moral law of God. 
that all who believe will be saved. Number nine, Jesus our Redeemer made atonement. Jesus our Redeemer made atonement by reconciling us to God. And what does that mean? When God, when He reconciled us to God, what that means is this, He put away our sins. He put away our sins. You can refer to Romans chapter 5 verse 11. Romans 5 verse 11. Look what it says right here. It says, it says, And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. He's not boasting about his faith. He's not boasting about his decision. He's not boasting about what he did for God. He is boasting about what Jesus did. Here's another thing. Go over here to Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, 19 and 22. Colossians 1, verse 19 through 22. It says right here in our Bible, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on the earth or things in the heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, who's He writing? Gentiles. He says to them, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from this hope, from the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. A man, by the way, who murdered Christians. Another fool. Another one. A man, not a... Not a great whatever. Okay, so God reconciled us to God, putting away our sin. Jesus, our Redeemer, made atonement for that. He made atonement by being a propitiation, that is, ending God's judicial wrath against us. Friend, I'm going to tell you something. When I hear folks, I remember when I went into my first church, there was a woman, she was from Nebraska, and things would happen. She, she, she practiced a kind of stoicism with a little s, not, not ancient stoicism, but she was an emotionless person, had that big-time Nebraska mid, Midwest ethic, work ethic. But she did, when something go wrong, she said, well, they're going to pay for it by God. They're going to pay for it. They'll answer for it one day. And I mean, it's almost like she said that with joy. Well, let me tell you something. For the believer, look what the Bible says. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because of His forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed. Don't you ever as a believer go out there and say to somebody else, they're going to pay someday because, dear friend, you're not going to pay because of Jesus. The full penalty was paid by him. No wonder he said to Telestai paid in full. How dare we go out there and speak curses to other people when the curse has been lifted off of us. That is not Christian vocabulary. That is the vocabulary of the flesh. Amen? Right? That is not what we do. That's not what we do. And here's the thing, by being a propitiation, ending God's judicial wrath against us, and by being an event, write down an event of substitution. You see, at the Father's will, the sinless Son of God bore the retribution that was due to the guilty ones. And I might add to the elect, but we won't go there. He bore the retribution due to us guilty ones. Where is that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 he who knew no sin became sin, that we who are the unrighteous might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior.
What a Savior. Galatians 3.13, He took the curse and became a curse. Colossians 2.4, it says right here in this passage, it says, I say this, that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments, for even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless, is that Colossians 2.4? Did I write that? that 2.14. Yeah, it's no, it's 2.14. Having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Glory to God. Amen. Are you awake? I'm almost finished. I have nothing else to say. Number 10. So Christ bearing our penalty in our place is the essence of the atonement. He bore the penalty. He took it all. He is the one who took the curse and became the curse. And the Bible says it took it, He took it on Him and He took it into His flesh. Into His flesh. And He became a curse. And so much that Deuteronomy says, Cursed is He that hangs on the tree. If anyone didn't deserve to be crucified, it was Jesus Christ. But He was, and He did it for us. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross despising the shame that he could have many sons and daughters in the kingdom. What right do we have to claim to that of any work of our own? It is his work alone in that is where our redemption comes. And that is where our redemption stands. That's where our confidence is. There is no more curse on us because Jesus saves. So last of all, number 11... Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And as the great hymn says, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And that ends the lesson. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word. We pray for its convicting power. It is the Word of God. We ask, Father, that you would take this through the power of your Spirit and work up within us and work out within us not only our security as believers but our assurance and our feelings. That, Father, we, through knowing that we have been made right with Christ, may truly pursue holiness and that knowing that every time we fail there is much more grace where sin abounds and that we can get up and keep trying. That it doesn't matter what our past is, we can go forward. What is we deal with now, we can go forward because we have a Savior and there is no one like Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you work it in the hearts of the people of the Journey Church to recognize the uniqueness and the singularity that is in this person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is His name and Christ is His title. He is our Messiah. He is our King and He has given His life to us. And we pray through the Word of God for the Bible says faith does not come by praying but faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. May it be so that Lord God you would redeem for yourself many, many sons and daughters of the kingdom and that we may know at all points as redeemed we may approach your throne of grace 
with boldness, with courage, bringing to you our petitions and our heartaches and our pain and our joys, and you will under no circumstance cast us out or leave us as orphans because you are the Savior. Hallelujah! What a Savior you are. In Jesus' name and God's people said,